Hey, it's me, Kayla White, the host of Valley 101. Out of an abundance of caution, almost everyone in our newsroom will be working from home for the next few weeks. That means we're away from our studio and our usual recording equipment, so you might notice that our podcast sounds a little different because of that, but it's not stopping us. We'll still bring you new episodes every week. Thank you for listening. Valley Fever. Whether you're a transplant or you've lived here for decades, odds are you've heard of it. As we head into the monsoon, we are going to be getting those nasty haboobs and the high winds. They carry more than just dust into our yards and homes, too. They actually carry tiny spores, which cause valley fever. Well, turns out more people in the valley and in Arizona are getting valley fever than ever before. It's both difficult to diagnose and tough to treat. But what exactly is Valley Fever? That's what we'll discover today. Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. Answering today's question about Valley Fever is podcast editor Katie O'Connell. Hey everyone. Katie, what do you have in store for us today? This episode includes a ton of information. So I'm going to break it down into a few parts. First, we'll tackle what causes valley fever. Then we'll look at symptoms, diagnosis, and treatment. And we'll be doing this for humans and pets. Katie, take it away. So up first, let's tackle valley fever in humans. To find out what valley fever is and how it manifests in us, I met up with an expert. Uh, Tom Gris, co-director of microbiology at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. Tom studies valley fever. He said that it's a fungal infection. So let's break that phrase down. It's a fungus. It grows as one form in the soil. And it grows in the soil when it's wet outside like the week we saw last week. And um, when things dry out, it forms spores that can be aerosolized and uh, inhaled and cause a disease. In other words, when the soil dries out, the fungus changes its shape. It becomes a spore or a microscopic sphere. And when the soil is kicked up during haboobs or construction, we end up breathing in those spores. Once that happens, those spores can create a fungal infection. Valley fever occurs in the Southwest, in states like Arizona, California, and New Mexico. It also occurs outside of the U.S., stretching down into Mexico and Central America. And as global temperatures rise, the fungus had made its way to drier soils in places like Washington State. While everyone across the valley is susceptible to it, Tom said that there may be people who are more likely to encounter the infection-causing spores. People like gardeners and landscapers who are disturbing those first few inches of soil. Each year, about 2-3% to of the valley's population is exposed and experiences some sort of infection. When you're infected, about two-thirds will not have noticeable disease. So it's only about a third who have symptoms. 
So that's what valley fever is. It's a fungus that grows in our soil and can make its way to our lungs, causing an infection. But what are some of the symptoms? Valley fever can be like a cold or a flu, but it's very prolonged. Yeah, the most uh, common ones are fatigue, um, fever, you can have night sweats, cough, uh, chest pain, but you know, I think it's uh, fatigue and cough that are, are the most common ones. And when we live in a dusty area, and you know, for anyone with kids, having a cough and being tired are, are pretty common symptoms. And that's what makes this difficult is that it can look like so many common things. And the symptoms will be varied in different people. Person number one might have night sweats, but person number two won't. Some people will get a fever, others won't. Some people will get, maybe about a third, uh, will get a rash. What that rash looks like can vary. Um, the most common one is sort of a blotchy rash on the shins that we call erythema nodosum, but there can be other rash that, that is caused by infection. Tom said there isn't a classic tell with valley fever. And that's where physicians who practice in the Southwest become familiar with the constellation of things that might make them think about valley fever. Some even call it the great mimicker because it tends to manifest itself like other illnesses. The biggest way to tell the difference between a common cold and valley fever boils down to duration. Tom said that the common cold onsets pretty quickly, and after about a week or two, you start to feel better. But with valley fever... Um, even people who require treatment, they can feel pretty bad for months. Um, even up to six months or longer, they can still have um, fatigue and some of the other symptoms. Tom said that valley fever accounts for 10 to 30% of, quote, community-acquired pneumonia, or pneumonia which is acquired outside of a hospital. Which is substantial. Uh, so a lot of people go to the doctor and they get antibiotics because they think they have just regular bacterial pneumonia, uh, and it doesn't get better, and they get another course of antibiotics, and they're still not feeling better, and then finally the testing might come back positive, or the doc doctor might think to test at that point, and then they realize what they really have. In severe cases of valley fever, the infection moves outside of the lungs or there's extensive lung damage. And for those with pre-existing conditions like asthma, valley fever may present more of an obstacle. Anytime you have a baseline um, insult to the lung and then you add another one, it just makes it a little bit harder. Um, but I, I think in general, if, if the lungs are fairly healthy, you know, people can still get through it just fine. So how do we diagnose valley fever? Unfortunately, it's incredibly difficult to diagnose. Doctors are reliant on blood testing. 
They're able to test for antibodies your body creates in response to the fungus. Because you wouldn't have these antibodies if you didn't have the infection. Still, there's one problem with that. It can take weeks for the blood results to come back positive after an infection. Sometimes it can take as long as three months. So even the physician who thinks to test early on, oh, you seem like you have valley fever. Maybe you're feeling ill enough they did a chest x-ray and see nodules or infiltrates. That's also consistent with valley fever. If they want to try to confirm it with the blood test, it might be negative the first time, maybe even the second time, until finally you, you have positive uh, blood results. Much like the symptoms, treatment varies too. For someone with a healthy immune system, the treatment may be as simple as monitoring the situation. And if it gets worse, then they'll treat. Um, if there's increasing amounts of lung damage where there's not just a nodule, but if, if that infection spreads and you start to have destruction of the tissue, um, we, you have what, what's called a cavity, um, which is an airspace of, of destroyed lung. If, if that can't be slowed with medication, they will actually go in and just cut it out. But Tom said that the drug treatments, quote, aren't that great because most of the drugs are aimed at helping the immune system. They keep the fungus from growing, but they don't kill it. So if you can slow the growth, then the immune system can get the upper hand. And recovery isn't quick. And even with treatment, about half the people were still having some symptoms, you know, four to six months on. But there's a silver lining here. If you've been exposed and your body gets over it, we do think that um, you are unlikely to experience disease again. That may vary person to person, but it's possible to test your level of immunity using a skin test, like the one that's administered for tuberculosis. All right, quick recap here. Valley fever is a fungal infection. The fungus grows in our soil, and its spores are kicked up during things like haboobs, which we talked about last week. The most common symptoms are fatigue and a dry cough. Treatment can vary from just monitoring the situation to surgery, depending on the severity of the diagnosis. But humans aren't the only ones who can experience valley fever. Coming up after this quick break, I'll dive into what valley fever looks like in our pets. Welcome back to the second half of today's episode. Now it's time to talk about what valley fever looks like in our pets. For this section, I talked to a different expert. Uh, Melissa Thompson, veterinarian at the Arizona Humane Society. Melissa said that valley fever can affect any pet. There are some species that tend to be a little bit more susceptible than others, and unfortunately our very beloved companion, the dog, tends to be um, one of those that seems to get infections more often than other species. And out of all dogs, Melissa said that boxers tend to get the infections more. 
You know, there's a lot of speculation as to why that could be. Uh, unfortunately, boxers are also tend to get a lot of different types of cancers, so you start to wonder whether or not their immune system just isn't as as rigorous as other breeds of dogs are, and that makes them susceptible to those types of diseases. Overall, Melissa said it's pretty difficult to gauge the percentage of pets that get valley fever each year, although there are some diagnostic companies studying that right now. TGen is a Phoenix-based research center. It focuses on genetics and infectious diseases. So TGen is testing the saliva of dogs, hoping to find genetic trends, the long-term goal to help humans, too. As with humans, the infection can't be spread from animal to animal. Dogs tend to get it when they're exposed during a dust storm or from digging in dry soil. When it comes to our pets, valley fever is once again the great mimicker. Well, the really difficult part about valley fever is it can look like a lot of things. It's hard to differentiate the symptoms of the infection compared to things like allergies. But here's how Melissa described some of the common symptoms. Well, he could be feeling just a little under the weather, if you will. He's just not acting right. He's a little lethargic. He might not want to eat or eat as much. Um, the other thing is we might have a, a cough, um, just kind of this chronic little cough that keeps building and building and, and just not feeling so well. We might be losing a little bit of weight. And so those can all be signs of, of an infection. That's for your, shall we say, standard valley fever infection. There are two types of severe valley fever cases. Either it's a severe case that's remained in the lungs and damaging them, making it harder for the animal to breathe. Or, like humans, it's disseminated outside of the lungs. If it's disseminated outside of the lungs, it can start to do things like deteriorate your pet's bones. So we've had cases here at the shelter where we've had dogs that um, you, you watch them and they're standing and it's, it's like they, we call it shifting leg lameness where they're, they're standing up, but they keep moving their feet just very gradually and kind of just shifting their weight back and forth. And when we did x-rays, this dog had lesions in all four legs down through, this, through the bones of the spine. Valley fever can also travel to your pet's brain and cause seizures. So it's, it's a pretty nasty fungus once it gets into the body and, and just kind of depends on where it goes on what type of clinical signs it actually shows. So how can your veterinarian tell if your dog has valley fever? Melissa said they'll run a blood test called a titer. So they're not actually looking for the fungus itself in the blood, but the body's ability to respond to the fact that the fungus is there and produces antibodies. So that titer is used to determine whether or not the dog has a, an active case. There are a few other ways they can whittle down the diagnosis. If your pet has a skin wound that isn't healing, they can do a biopsy on it to see if the fungus is present there. They could do x-ray tests on a pet that has a cough to see if there are any nodules growing in the lungs. You might do combination testing to get all of the information, your baseline information. Much like how the disease shows itself in humans, there isn't one clear path to a diagnosis. 
but with the dogs, because they're so diverse and they could be anything, it's hard to say like, oh, this is for sure, you know, this is for sure valley fever, um, because it could be a long list of other diseases as well. And so that's why those multiple testings can be helpful because it kind of helps point you in a, in a direction. And treatment will vary depending on your pet's case. For standard, non-severe cases, Melissa said that your veterinarian will most likely put your pet on an antifungal medication. The one that's most commonly used is, is a medication called fluconazole. And so that medication, um, it's one that's a little bit safer to the liver than some of the other ones, so that's why it's commonly used. For pets with severe cases, Melissa said your vet might start with fluconazole and perhaps add in other medications. The other thing to consider too is that we want to make sure that we're trying to help the immune system too. So if there's other supplements that your doctor might recommend for your pet to help make sure that they're getting all the nutrition that they need and having a good immune system because if we if we can help our immune system fight things off as well, then we're then we're benefiting the dog holistically. So whether you're talking about valley fever in humans or dogs, both of the experts I talked to for today's episode said the same thing. If there's a dust storm in the area, stay inside and definitely don't walk your dog. That will help with prevention. And if you think someone you care about or your pet has valley fever, get them to the doctor or the vet as soon as possible. That will help prevent their case from becoming severe Hey listeners, it's me, Kayla again. Thanks for all that information, Katie. How do you feel after learning all of it? Honestly, knowing that it happens to such a small portion of our population kind of set my mind at ease a bit, but I'm definitely going to be cautious when taking my beloved dog Otto out for a walk. One quick note for our listeners, the audio in today's episode came from ABC 15 Arizona. Well, Valley 101 listeners, we hope that episode helped you understand a little bit more about this infection we've all heard about. If you have any other questions, share them with us on Twitter at Valley101Pod. That's it for this week. I'm Kayla White, signing off. See you next week.